On this episode of Larry the Golf Guy, we talk to Walter Driver Jr. Um, Walt um, was uh, president of the USGA for two one-year terms in 2006 and 7. Um, that came at the end of a 10-year run of service uh, for the USGA at the highest levels. He started out as general counsel and served on various committees on the, uh, as part of the executive committee before becoming president. Uh, but that's just part of the Walt Driver story. Um, as you'll hear, Walt um, had a stellar legal career, um, uh, being not only a partner at King & Spaulding, um, but also becoming its chairman at age 45, uh, where he served for a while uh, before um, becoming president of the USGA. Um, and, um, you know, had a stellar playing career, um, played at Stanford, um, where he went to college, um, uh, participated in a number of national tournaments. Um, he's quite modest about his um, playing abilities, but um, uh, the fact that uh, he, as you'll hear, won the um, club championship at Peachtree uh, Golf Club, where he belongs outside of Atlanta, at the age of 68, and I'm sure that's not the only time he's won it, um, speaks to his talent as a golfer. Uh, but we talked through his life in golf and his service on the USGA and some notable experiences he had, including at the um, U.S. Open in Shinnecock in 2004, um, when the Greens became um, uh, borderline unplayable on that Sunday, and he'll talk, talk to us about what, uh, what led to that. Um, and um, uh, lots of other interesting uh, nuggets. So up next, uh, Walt Driver, um, former USGA president. Well, welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy. And it's my great honor today to have with us uh, Walter Driver Jr. Walt, um, as we'll get into, has had a long history in the game. Um, as well as a lot of other notable things in his career, stellar legal career, um, which we'll mention running King and Spalding, uh, among other things. Um, but um, the, the golf side of it ultimately was with the USGA and culminating in his presidency um, right before actually Jim Vernon, who's someone else who we've had on, on the show. Walt, thank you so much for joining and making time for us today. Happy to do it. Um, so just to kind of give, folks a little bit of background and kind of go back to the beginning. Um, if I'm remembering right, I think you grew up in El Paso, uh, Texas. And as I remember reading a little bit about you, it sounds like um, as, a, as, a, uh, as a teenager, as a youngster, it wasn't golf, but tennis was more of your focus, if I'm remembering, right? Yeah, my dad was a great tennis player. He uh, won the NCAAs when he was a sophomore at the University of Texas. Wow. was on the Junior Davis Cup team with Vic Satius and Christy Everett's father. And wow. uh, so we all grew up playing tennis. And uh, that's what we did. We never, people talked about family vacations. Well, we didn't have those. We went to tennis tournaments. <laughs> that's funny. Um, and um, so, so how is it that you kind of ended up um, rotating from tennis to golf? Uh, by pure uh, happenstance, I broke my right elbow playing football when I was 15. They missed the crack in the bone and it didn't heal right. 
And when I continued to play tennis, it got so inflamed and restricted movement that I had to learn how to eat left-handed and oh, wow. throw a football left-handed and everything. So I gave up tennis and, um, my dad was still playing competitive tennis, but he was dabbled in a few rounds of golf. So um, he took me to the driving range and I thought it seemed like fun. I uh, then started uh, washing cars in the neighborhood for $5 a car and made enough money to buy myself a half a set of clubs. And I bought Ben Hogan's book, Five Easy Lessons. Oh, the classic. And That's a classic. Yep. It is. And I studied the pictures and did it all and had a mirror in my room and taught myself to play golf. And I loved the game. It was good. Wow, that's impressive, self-taught, um, and that is the Bible, um, for sure, I think probably the most, I, I still remember, and I was a child looking at those pictures, those um, great, I think it was Anthony Ravelli who did the illustrations, and that famous one with the mirror sitting on his shoulders and keeping the hands below, that's a great book. It's all I ever had, <laughs> and then, uh, let's see, I was about 15 or 16 then, and I liked it, and just frankly the game came easily to me and a year and a half later I was playing at Stanford wow so um which we'll which we'll get to so did you end in that brief time when you were um 14 and and you know had your injury and rotated to golf and before college did you play competitively at all in the area in junior terms I know things were not nearly as developed as of course the junior program is now which is like a almost like a tour these days but um did you play at all competitively or play on your high school i i did play competitively but we were uh, in el paso we were a long way from any place else there were no <laughs> there were no junior tournaments uh, i played in men's tournaments uh i remember my first year i won the club championship uh in el paso and they promptly changed the rules so that to play in the club championship, you had to be the actual member, not a child of a member. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they, they excluded me. And then they had the only junior turn. I played in the, they started a city junior championship when I was 17, I guess. And I played in that once. And I rode the train 600 miles to Austin or San Antonio, Texas, and oh, wow. played in Texas juniors twice. And those are the only junior tournaments I ever played in. Wow. And we, wow. we didn't have it. There was no high school golf team. Got it. Got it. Um, so you end up making your way to Stanford. Um, let's talk a little about that. So how did you end up going uh, and choosing Stanford? Um, uh, it, did you have any other connection with it or just it, what, how did that have come about? I applied to a couple of colleges, got my acceptances sat at the uh, kitchen table and my father said Stanford seems like a really good place to go and the weather's good you could play golf there and some people had suggested that I might want to go to Yale which I thought sounded pretty much like the end of the world from El Paso <laughs> and the weather was bad so I said okay I'll go to Stanford I'd never seen it didn't have any connection with it at all and when September came I got in a car and drove uh, from El Paso on Interstate 10 and Interstate uh, 5 and 101 and University Avenue came up and we got off and I drove into Stanford and I just still remember looking 
up thinking, wow, I get to go to college here. That's just amazing. This, <laughs> this looks really good. <laughs> For sure. And it's funny to hear you say that because I remember the first time I, I ended up going to Stanford for law school going out there and driving down University Avenue and seeing the, you know, the church in the background of the mountains and the palm trees. And yeah, I had the same reaction about going to law school there. It's beautiful. So what, tell me a little bit about what your experience was like at Stanford. It was an eye-opening experience and life-changing experience in every respect to go from a public high school in El Paso, Texas to Stanford and meet all those people and have the access to the great professors and just experience the whole thing was, it changed my life and opened my eyes to a much broader world. And um, I'm always very grateful for that experience. Yeah, no, I, I bet it's an amazing place. So <clears throat> you played on the golf team there. Um, you know, what, what was that like? Um, and I mean, I know it's funny you mentioned Yale because between Yale and Stanford, those are probably two of the best college golf courses in the country. Um, but uh, Stanford is a wonderful course and, and of course, a great history uh, of golf there. Um, and um, what was it like playing on the team there? Well, there were four of us in my class and we played together all the way through all four years and became fast friends. In fact, two of them have now retired to Carmel and oh. uh, I see them two or three times a year and we have grudge matches with our deteriorating golf games <laughs> and uh, we're still fast friends. And then we had, um, the, there was a fifth or sixth year senior named Jim Ream who was had switched from engineering to pre-med and he was an all-American golfer three years in a row. Wow. And I, I swear he never hit a practice ball, not one. He just was enormously talented. And then he qualified, he was all-American three years, qualified for several U.S. Opens. And then years later won the uh, Bing Crosby Pebble Beach Pro-Am playing at scratch by birdieing the last hole wow. with no stroke to win the tournament. Wow. So we had a lot of good players and we made friends and I still see them all. That's fantastic. Um, and I know, you know, it's funny in looking back at the golf team at Stanford over the years, obviously a lot of notable players and Tiger Woods and, and uh, among others. Um, but what's interesting, and I hadn't really connected the dots until I, I, I saw this somewhere, made this point the other day, three USGA presidents come out of the Stanford golf program. So yourself, um, Sandy Tatum and, and Grant Spate, did, did you, um, I know Sandy would have been older than you. I mean, did you sort of run across these folks at all over the years? I imagine you must have. I, I did. In fact, Grant was the head of the USGA nominating committee uh, that interviewed me to be general counsel. And so his committee actually nominated me to be the general counsel of the USGA. And I had met Sandy before just generally, and he stayed very much involved in the USGA almost until his death. And so we, I saw a fair amount of him and I, my memory is Sandy is watching him walk out of the down the hill at Cypress Point to go play with his little Sunday bag over his shoulder, carrying his own bag and having his metronomic swing where he would take it back to the top and not just pause, but wait 
and then he would hit the ball and it never changed in the 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No long, long time member at Cypress for sure. Um, that's great. Um, so, um, so you play at Stanford um, and then off to law school. Did you give any thought? I mean, you were obviously a very skilled player. Um, any thought to try to making um, golf, you know, playing golf a career at all? Or were you kind of always sort of thinking, no, I'm going to sort of pursue something else like law? I was always told I would be a good lawyer and I should go try that. And then when I got to Stanford and realized that however good I might have been in El Paso, there were people on the national level that were clearly better than I was. And if I was losing to them in college, I would lose to them even by a wider margin in any professional effort. So I never really thought about it. Fair enough. Um, so back to Texas for law school. Um, and then you joined King and Spalding. So, so take, talk to me a little bit. So how do we go from law school at UT to King and Spalding? I was walking down the hall in the law school one day and this fellow in a suit looked at me and said, you didn't sign up to interview me. And I said, I don't know who you are. <laughs> and uh, he explained that he was from King and Spalding and we talked and he asked if I had a resume. And I said, sure, every law student has a resume. And he asked me to get one and I did. And he looked at it and read it. And we talked a little while longer and he said, well, I want you to come to visit the office and uh, have an interview, a formal interview. And I thought, well, that's nice, but that doesn't make any sense. I don't know anything about Atlanta or you or anything else, but he pursued it and wouldn't let me say no. And finally, uh, on the weekend of Thanksgiving that fall, I came to Atlanta and um, went to the, I got it, went to the hotel, checked in, there was a note from him that said, here's your ticket to the Georgia, Georgia Tech football game. <laughs> I sat next to his dad who had played tight end for Georgia Tech 30 years earlier, a big bear of a man. And uh, my, I had bruises on my leg where he kept pounding on my leg every time Georgia Tech would score. <laughs> and then my interview consisted of going to the house of every member of the hiring committee wow. and finishing up at two o'clock in the morning at wow. the firm Rock on Tours house. And when I got back to law school, my then girlfriend, later wife, said, well, what do you think about the firm? I said, I don't know much about the firm, but I had a great time. And so they kept after me. And I, I frankly just thought it was going to be sort of a lark to come to Atlanta and try it. But I'd never, I, I didn't know a single person in the city, not one. And I came and tried it. And here I am all these years later. Wow, that's that's a great story. I always kind of wondered how you ended up going to King and Spalding because uh, I hadn't seen any Atlanta in your background. That's a great story. I, I love that. Um, so you join King and Spalding. Um, uh, you know, you uh, end up specializing in international banking and finance, make partner at 30, um, become chairman at 45. Um, you know, just an incredible career there. Um, you know, obviously, you know, you're very successful being in a big law firm like that is a really demanding career. How are you able to sort of keep your golf game as good as you did all those years um, and balance everything? I just tried hard. I had no plan. Uh, I would get up early Saturday mornings at 
seven or eight o'clock and go hit practice balls and then come back to either go to work or take care of my three kids or do whatever I was supposed to do. I played some competitive golf, but it was very hard. I, I learned that playing even regionally or nationally competitive golf with people who had much less demanding jobs or in some cases had tried professional golf for a while and then been reinstated was a huge advantage to them and disadvantage to me. And uh, that's just how it went. I used to tell people that if you wanted to have a, a really great golf career and a really great professional career and raise a family, if you could do two out of those three, you were very fortunate. Yeah, that, those are wise words um, for sure. And because um, I was thinking back, I mean, and, and you, you did play, I mean, if I remember right, you played in some mid-amateurs, you played in some British amateurs, so you did play at the national level. Um, and, and I totally hear you, you know, in terms of some of the other, some of your contemporaries who, you know, had more success, didn't have nearly the kind of demanding jobs that, that, that you did. Um, besides the national stuff, I mean, you must've played regionally in Georgia in state amateurs and stuff like that. Did you do that much at all? A little bit, but not too much. I didn't have much spare time for that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, uh, pretty demanding um, career, to be sure. Um, and, and with your family and your, your, your three children, uh, totally hear that. Um, so you never really, you know, it's sort of, you, you never really had any of the itch to sort of as you got older. And I just I watched some of your, you know, people like Jay Siegel and Alan Doyle, again, didn't have the kind of demanding careers you had and spent more time. They gave the senior tour a try. That, that was never anything you really gave much thought to, it didn't sound like? I played amateur golf against Alan Doyle and never beat him. <laughs> and uh, I decided if, and he obviously did very well once he turned pro in his late sure 40s. But, uh, you know, when, in all the amateur qualifyings, if there were 100 players for three spots, it was really 199 players for two spots because Doyle was going to take one of them. And uh, yeah, I, I couldn't keep up with that. You know, it's, it's funny. I never, never met Alan, never played with him, watched him from a distance. I was just amazed. I saw that swing, which is kind of a unique swing. Um, but boy, he did have a lot of success when he turned pro in his late forties. And then on the senior tour, um, I guess he could just get the ball around. I mean, it's just not a classic looking swing, but he was an incredible record. I remember one senior open at Prairie Dunes. Right. When I was with the USGA where uh, Tom Watson and Alan Doyle were, uh, I guess, tied going into the last round, if I'm right. Yeah. And somebody said, oh, well, your college buddy Watson is going to kill him. And I said, look, I played college golf with Tom and I played amateur golf with Alan. And this is going to be a really close match. And the people said, well, how can that be? And I said, just watch. And Doyle, Doyle beat Tom. He did. At Prairie Dune, you have a good memory. That's exactly right. I remember that. Um, so speaking of Prairie Dunes and yourself, let's maybe talk about the USGA a little bit. So um, uh how did you get into the um, administrative side of the game? Um, if I think if I remember right, maybe 
some, you did some stuff at the Georgia Golf Association level first, perhaps before the USGA, but talk to me about how that came about. A friend of mine uh, called me, I guess, and said, you know, well, you ought to be the general counsel of the USGA. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and he said, well, send your resume and a letter expressing interest to this guy. So I did. And I never heard back at all. Nothing. No response. Not a thank you. No, nothing. Wow. Wow. The next year, a different friend called and said, you ought to be the general counsel for the USGA. And I said, look, I tried that. I didn't even get a thank you note. He said, well, send another letter. So I sent the same resume and a letter where all I did was change the date. And I sent it in and I got invited by Grant Spaeth to come interview uh -huh. in Detroit at uh, Oakland Hills. And you know, we came, I came out and Grant said he thought it went well and they'd be in touch with me shortly. And I never heard back from them. And then in December, a woman called and said, I'm Kathy Paparelli with the USGA. And is your wife joining you in Portland? And I said, I don't know who you are or why you're calling. And she said, well, I have this list that says you're the new general counsel of the USGA and you need to become sworn, get sworn in. And I said, well, Portland, Oregon or Portland, Maine. She said, <laughs> she said Portland, Oregon. So I said, okay, I'll be there. Wow. That's said, how you happened. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. So I wow. had one, one hour interview and that was it. Wow. So, um, so that's what, probably around 1997 or eight, somewhere in the late nineties. That was. That interview must've been in 96. I got, was general counsel starting in 97. Got it. Okay. So, so that's your, so now you're on the, in that role. What was that like? And, and maybe talk a little bit, cause I know obviously leading up to your presidency um, 10 years later, you, you had a, a bunch of different roles at the USGA on, on the executive committee. Maybe talk a little about that and what those were like. Uh, I have a couple of vivid memories. First was at the US Open in 97, my first as the general counsel, that was in the days pre-cell phones and I stepped out of the room to go call my office and take care of my day job. And Sandy Tatum was about, was getting into a speech about how Tiger Woods was coming and it was going to change the face of golf. And we needed to make golf more affordable and accessible to a lot of different people. And I thought, well, that sounds just like mother and apple pie. Right. And I left and I came back in and the president of the, was saying, well, thank you very much, Sandy. We're going to form a committee to make golf affordable and accessible in the United States. And it's Tom, Dick, Harry, and Walt. And Walt, you're chairman. <laughs> That's the famous thing, right? You leave the room, you end up getting those kind of jobs. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know what happened, but I, I'm bewildered. I'm a, a rookie general counsel, and you've gotten you've made me in charge of this. But, but I got into it and got people to come and talk and figured out what I thought was a good way to go about it. And uh, then um, told what our recommendation was, which was that the USGA would commit $50 million, which in those days would, was an unheard of commitment right. to, to this project. And uh, after various meetings and 
a lot of talks since the USGA had never done anything like this before. Uh, it was finally approved uh, in the, at the autumn meeting in October. And um, that program ultimately uh, caused the USGA to contribute about 75 or $80 million to making golf more affordable and accessible. Yep. I was very proud of what we tried to do, but as one of the cynics said, well, congratulations, Walt, you now have 50 cents to spend for every man, woman, and child in the country. How are you going to do that? <laughs> it, was, it was a very daunting task, but for we sure. tried local champions who would work with the kids and, and train kids and expose them to the game, a kind of a predecessor to the first tee. And right. ultimately, some of that money was given to the tour to fund the administrative expenses of the first tee. And the other thing that I got, uh, again, I was very naive. I didn't understand what was going on. Um, at the uh, autumn meeting where that vote was taken to set up this program, yeah. the technical director came up to me and said, uh, Walt, I, I think we have a problem with a spring-like effect. Yeah. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, do you know the rules? And I said, yeah, I've played competitive golf. He said, do you know the equipment rules in the appendix? And I said, I can't say that I do. And he said, well, the rules prohibit building a club that has a spring-like effect. And he said, we've now determined that the large-headed titanium drivers uh, do have a spring-like effect. And I said, well, haven't you, haven't, you didn't, didn't you approve those? And he said, yes, we did a year ago. And I said, well, how many of them have been sold in reliance on that letter? And he said, about six million. <laughs> And he said, uh, I think you better get involved. It's going to be a tough legal issue. And so I got kind of drawn into that issue, which turned into being drawn into the technology and everything else for about the next five years. Um, again, by just happenstance, it was not anything I ever anticipated. But that was a real eye opener into the world of technology and golf. Yeah, which is, of course, still a big issue. And maybe let's talk about that a little bit. If I'm remembering right, I think, you know, you were got him, as you say, you got involved in the equipment stuff. And and there was, I think it was 2002, that joint statement of principles that got drafted that you must have been involved with. And of course, you know, even 20 years later, we're still grappling with a lot of these technology issues. Um, maybe let's talk a little bit about that and kind of where you think we are on that, um, you know, the, and just kind of to give folks who may not be as familiar with this listening a little more context. I mean, we had, um, and I remember this was sort of towards the end of Mark of, of our, we mentioned Mark Newell, who we both know towards his end of his president involvement in his presidency, that hundred page USGA distance report that came out a couple of years ago, I think in February of 2020. And there's, there's still, that's still an ongoing issue. What do you sort of think about all of that in terms of distance um, and, and kind of where we are on that issue and how we're grappling with that and where we may be headed on it? Well, let me give you and everyone else a little bit of background. Yeah, please. Uh, one, one of the goals it is <laughs> the USGA governs golf in North America. 
the RNA governs golf everywhere else in the world. And each jurisdiction, if you will, has roughly the same number of golf clubs and same number of golfers. But the RNA is very different. They have 2,000 members roughly from all over around the world. They joined not to govern golf, but to play golf and, and drink scotch whiskey at the RNA. <laughs> and they have a, a much more diverse constituency that uh, ranges from uh, things that are clubs that are very similar to the U.S. to very uh, poor and hard scrabble golfers around the world. And also at the time, the RNA had been informed that they would be treated for liability purposes as an unincorporated association under Scottish mm. law, Interesting. which meant that every member of the association was jointly and severally liable for any liability that the association had. And I was a member of the RNA, so I thought, gee, that's very daunting because that means if we do something that causes uh, any liability, these 2,000 people have to pay for it themselves. Right. And as a result, I don't think they're going to want to do anything. So it, the first goal was to make sure we had uh, compatible and, and comparable worldwide rules. That was hard to do with the RNA because of their structure. And they, at the last minute, backed out of an agreement in principle on how to govern spring-like effect and the coefficient of restitution, yeah. which caused a, a year or two worth of negotiations with them and caused me to actually write the statement of principles got because it. that was the sort of Magna Carta that got them to agree to, on how to address the issue going forward. So that took a while to work out. Um, the, the technology issue is, is one that has been active in golf for about 100 years. And if you go back and read the articles written in the early 1900s, as golf moved into the gutta percha ball from the Haskell ball and Every, and, the, and then Gene Sears in, invented the sandwich. sandwich right. the, the writings are almost verbatim what was being written about 2000 and in the early 2000s. Everybody's been concerned about the advance of technology, what it does to the requirements of skill in the game. And I, I would say that when that I got into it more and more, it became clear to me that this was the most difficult issue that I had seen in any aspect of my legal or other career. Wow. That's more, saying a lot. Yeah. Had more comp, more different constituencies. The answers were not at all clear. The, you had people who were very economically interested, people who were very philosophically interested. And most of the time, people didn't understand the technology, but it didn't mean that they weren't firmly opinionated. Right, right. Um, for example, Sandy Tatum, who you mentioned, yeah. was firmly of the view that the, the switch from wound ballada balls 
to solid core one piece balls gave a turbo effect, turbocharge effect, the faster your swing speed went. And every scientist and every PhD uh, testing uh, expert that we talked to said, that is not possible as a matter of physics. Mm. That, that you get the same reaction for every mile an hour of speed in into the impact that you it, every it's 2.9 yards for every mile an hour swing speed but sandy would go around because that was very inconvenient for him to <laughs> it didn't fit into his philosophy but every i'm not picking on sandy everybody had some something like that um and for instance, Jack Nicholas was very outspoken, and we sent our head uh, technical guy to visit with Jack at the at the memorial and meet the captain's club. And Jack called back and said, "I'm sorry, I just hadn't uh, did not understand the physics. I'm, I need to understand the physics, and I'm going to keep my mouth shut until I understand that." Which, of course, didn't work. Didn't last very long. <laughs> but my my point is is that all of these people are very dedicated golfers. They were all opinionated, but the technology and the cost of making any change and the degree of difficulty of any rule that would take away equipment or technology that the people playing golf had already gotten used to and paid for was almost impossible to do. There was one thought at one point to just draw the distance standard where the at the distance where the wound blot of ball went. And somebody in the meeting asked what what percentage of balls would then be uh, non-conforming. And the answer was about 70 percent of all balls wow. made in the wow. world would instantly become non-conforming. And they looked at me and said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, you're going to have to get somebody else to go before the TV camera and explain that one, because I, I think that's a <laughs> dead loser position. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it, it's in my judgment, it remains a very complicated issue. And there are a lot of people who feel that the governing bodies must do something about it. But when you start asking questions about what it is that you would do and how you would implement it and who would pay for it and how would it really work, they get steadily more befuddled. So I don't have any magic answers. Yeah, it's a very tough issue. Um, it seems like, uh, and, and I'm not nearly as knowledgeable about it as you to be sure, but I mean, it seems like some sort of bifurcation is almost, you know, uh, may, may be the way to go. I mean, I know people talk about bifurcation and there are some who, you know, find that very abhorrent. Um, although to me, I look at things like um, maybe a poor analogy, but like baseball where, you know, aluminum bats are used all the way up, but you never would have aluminum bats in the majors. God forbid you'd kill someone the way those guys hit the baseball. Um, but, um, you know, the notion of having some sort of bifurcated equipment standard where whether it's the ball or, or whatever that is played at the at the professional level is just different than what the amateurs play. Um, what do you think about bifurcation as an approach? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I think it's 
a very complicated issue. Uh, for example, um, if you bifurcate, start with the ball. Yep. If you have a competitive ball, and let's call it a tour ball, uh, that's 10%, goes 10% less. Uh, the first question is, where do you bifurcate it? It's easy to bifurcate it on the PGA Tour, but if you play in the Georgia State Open, is that a short ball event? Is the Georgia State Amateur a short ball event? Is the Women's State Amateur a short ball event? If you're an amateur playing in the U.S. Open, you play the short ball or the long ball. And if some people would have to go back and forth from one ball to the next, depending on where they were playing that weekend. And the, when we, the, when I was there, the USGA tried three different times to have a shorter ball made and the ball was a prototype was made, but the characteristics of it for playability and aerodynamics were not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And I assume, but I don't know, that the, the manufacturers could make a shorter bifurcated ball now. But to my knowledge, I've never seen one that the pros would play. The other factor that I didn't understand was I went and talked to a number of, I think, thoughtful tour pros who at the time were adamantly against it but not for the reasons that I would have expected. The, the kind of conventional wisdom was they all had contracts and they didn't want anything that would interfere right. with the contracts. None of them mentioned that. What they mentioned was if you had a bifurcated ball, they figured that that would help about half the tour players and hurt about half the tour players. Mm. And they didn't know which group they would be in but they were opposed to it because they had spent their whole career developing a game around a certain set of equipment right. and being competitive and frankly, getting themselves into a really good place in their lives. Right. And they didn't want that to be put at risk uh, so that people wouldn't, didn't want to see Tiger Woods hit 180 or at seven iron. It wasn't worth it to them. Right. And I thought, gee, unless there's, a general acceptance from the leading professionals, this is going to be really hard to sell to the, uh, to the golf world at large. And I don't know where that stands. I, I confess when I stepped down as president of the USGA, we had not solved it. And uh, they've continued <coughs> to study it. They're now, I gather, leaning toward bifurcating the driver which is simpler than bifurcating the ball uh, because you, you only need a thousand of those drivers and somebody can make them. Right. But it doesn't address the philosophical question of who has to play the driver and do you really want to do that? Golf has never been like horse racing where you handicap the best performer to try to even things out. Right. We've always rewarded higher skill and higher fitness and all the things that people have done to get better and there would need to be i think a very robust debate on what's in the best interest of the game and the philosophy of the game recognizing that 
it's pretty obvious, continued significant gains in distance make the game uh, a different game. It's not easier or harder. It's just a different game. A, a different game and, and um, you know, more bigger courses, there's environmental aspects to it than, of course, you know, some of the, the great courses. And, you know, one of the wonderful things about golf is, um, you know, we take our national championships to these, you know, just fantastically historical places and, um, you know, the Marians and, and of the world and stuff and other places like that. And um, you just sort of hate to see um, the in growing distance obsolete any of these places. Um, and, and uh, but, you know, as you say, it's a tough issue. That's for sure. I'm not sure where it all settles out. Uh, but I mean, what's interesting to me is you were president 15 years ago, you grappled with this issue, you know, before you became president. Um, and um, here we are in 2022, and we're still grappling with it. So not an easy issue, to be sure. <laughs> well, you, you, you can actually look back and think golf has grappled with it for 100 years. Yeah, right. You're good. Fair point. That's true. Um, that is true. Um, let me ask you about um, uh, just one other thing. Um, uh, wh while you were serving on the committee, and I'm just curious, because I, as, as a golf fan, I remember this vividly, but I'm sort of interested in your thoughts, because you were there and, 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 and in the seat of having to make the decision. And that's sort of going back to the U.S. Open um, in 2004 at Shinnecock, um, and um, you know, one of our speaking of shrines, one of our great courses where we've had the U.S. Open a number of times, um, and um, uh, what you faced that Sunday, um, which was you know an unexpected winds really dried out the course, and you guys were in a tough, tough position, and you were kind of right squarely in the center of that stuff i mean what was that like to grapple with i'm sure that must have been quite a quite a, 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 a stressful day it was very stressful and it was not what i volunteered for <laughs> to put it mildly yeah. but I, I will tell you the whole story which I, as far as i know has not been told um that the course at shinnecox the prevailing wind is off the ocean and therefore into you on the seventh hole the par three Yep. Uh, on Saturday, uh, the wind was changing and starting to come across the sound from Connecticut. And it was a dry wind that started someplace in Canada, I think. And I remember looking at the flag thinking, this is going to be a very tough, windy, hot day. Yep. And I called the two USGA uh, staff people on the radio and said, all right, stop rolling the greens. We're not going to roll the greens anymore and tell the superintendent not to roll them. And one of the guys said, got it. The other guy didn't answer, but I assumed he was just uh, listening. And that night uh, on the news, they had a news uh, conference every night and I was the, the whole USGA uh, presenter and somebody in the press called and said are you still on the greens and I said no I've given instructions not to and they said well the superintendent is still rolling the greens and I said well he shouldn't be I'll talk to him and he said well he thinks that the USGA is talking out of both sides of your mouth mm. and I said I don't know what you're talking about so 
I went out Sunday, five o'clock in the morning, set the holes. The greens were very firm and crisp. Yeah. Like on seven, I had wanted to have the hole in sort of the back right. I ended up putting the whole location in the middle of the green. On 11, I'd wanted to have it again in the back right. We ended up, or the front right, we ended up putting it up up in the back where all the putts were uphill. And uh, so I went back in about nine o'clock to have some food. And Mike Davis called and said, Walt, I'm at the seventh green. We've had three groups go through. One guy made a bogey and everybody else made double. I'm not sure we can do this. I went out there, looked at it, thought, no, we can't do it. Take the flag stick out, turned it upside down, stopped play. Uh, the crowd in New York, typ typical New York fashion is streaming. Let them play. It's supposed <laughs> to be hard. And then the, I called the USGA starter on the first tee and said, don't send anybody else off because there's nowhere for them to go till we get this worked out. Got the water out, started syringing every green on the golf course, about every third or fourth group, but alternating it. So nobody got all the greens syringed. Uh, it was a very uh, stressful day to put it mildly. We got the finished. Um, I thought, golly, that really, I've never seen greens do that. Uh, about a week later, the phone rang and uh, it was a USGA staffer who said uh, I, that he just had talked to one of the local sup uh, superintendents. And the tradition at the open is that all the local superintendents pitch in and help the host superintendent do his job. Yeah. And one of these guys had called and told the USGA that what had actually happened was that one of the two USGA staffers had told the superintendent to stop rolling. The other guy had told him to keep rolling, contrary oh to what I had said. Right. And he thought he was being whipsawed. And then when I talked to the to TV people, he thought he was being uh, made a scapegoat. And so the superintendent got the local buddies and at two o'clock in the morning, they went out and rolled the greens for two hours. Oh, wow. Wow. And the greens were, in fact, almost unplayable. And I, I confirmed that as far as I could tell, that is exactly what had happened. And I decided that I would eat the issue because it was a USGA failure caused by the dissension between the two staff people. Right. That turned it loose and this was not something i wanted to have in public and so we just ate it wow, uh, but it, wow. it was not an agronomic issue it was a a personnel issue because i didn't understand that the two usga guys didn't like each other and regularly fought oh and this wow. just happened wow. to be how it came out uh so the it, it was a failure by the management of the USGA, including me, not to know that. But it was not a failure to understand how to set up a golf course. Wow. Fascinating. I, that, that is an interesting, I never, never was aware of that. That's an interesting background. Um, well, I, I, I hadn't said anything for whatever it's been now. A long time. Yeah, 18 years. 18 years, it, right. It, it didn't do any good. I, yeah. There's no point in 
I going into all that. that. I appreciate but that. For for example, that one of the changes that made is well, first of all, one of the guys was retired early. I fired the other guy, and every year after that, we uh, put a fence around the U.S. Open course, and we equipped a local a law enforcement agency with the carts with lights and told them to to uh, re review the course all night every night wow. for a week beforehand that we were not going to have anybody on the golf courses in the future wow fascinating i appreciate you appreciate you sharing that um so um wow that's i'm, I'm just grappling with that in my head that is that's amazing um so you um you know go on from there you become president i i want to at least spend a minute talk about your presidency um you know which is you know great accomplishment working all the way up and and you know obviously great service all these years for the usga what was your presidency like and as you think back on it as in during your presidency is there a particular accomplishment or or a item that you view as kind of maybe your most significant um uh, accomplishment during your presidency at all i I had the view that my job was to uh, guard and, and enhance the game. And to do that, I needed to guard and enhance the USGA. That right. The USGA could not do its job for the game unless the USGA was fit, if you will, and good. And I found a number of instances that I thought we had an opportunity to move forward. Leading the environmental charge was one. Yeah, yep. I wanted to change the our access to the internet so the USGA could become the portal for golf worldwide, and we had the money to do that. Both of those were um, ended up being too far reaching for the senior staff to grab onto. Uh, I thought we needed to get more internal discipline. Our medical costs were going up 25% a year. Wow. Uh, the retirement fund was being strapped, and I thought we needed to change from a defined benefit plan to a defined contribution plan. Yep. Uh, the comp process, as far as I could tell, was not functioning. We had an expert tell us that there was... Uh, an inverse uh, reaction to good reviews compared to salary that the best performers were not being rewarded mm -hmm. because of an internal structural issue. And the USGA had a, what seemed like a really good program to give its employees benefits for their kids could, could go to college. What I found was that there were only about 10 employees out of 170 that had kids in college and the USGA was paying 50% of the total college cost for those kids, regardless of need or academic performance or any review. Mm. And I thought that seemed very um, uh, disproportionate to the employees as a whole. So I began the process of phasing that out and putting in an, uh, a bonus plan for good performance that every employee would be eligible for. <clears throat> All of those changes 
I thought were necessary to make the USGA stronger and more modern. Yep. Uh, and the executive committee was 100% in agreement. But the individual employees, particularly at the more senior levels, had gotten used to their good good spot, and they didn't like my volunteering to help them. They didn't want my help, to mm. put it mildly. Yeah. So, but I all of those things ultimately happened, and years later, after the financial crisis in 2007 and eight, a number of the younger employees called me and thanked me for taking those met those steps that ultimately saved their jobs. So some people liked it. Some people didn't. That's kind of the way America goes. <laughs> it sure is. I mean, <laughs> you know, accomplishing change like that can always be hard, but th- th- that that's a lot. And, and sounds like it was all necessary and good to hear, even if it didn't happen immediately that over time it, it did, because all those things make, certainly make a lot of sense. Um, you know, let me um, uh, switch gears for a little bit. Um, I can't let, I, I, having the opportunity to talk to someone like you with tremendous experience, knowledge, and wisdom in the game, I, I have to ask you about Live Golf. Um, uh, and, and just really curious, because you're such a thoughtful guy, kind of what you think about what's happening. I mean, I don't think, um, I mean, I know USGA isn't focused on professional golf. This is a PGA Tour, more of a PGA Tour issue, but just as a golfer, a knowledgeable person and a lover of the game like like I am, what's your kind of thoughts on what Live Golf is doing, how the PGA Tour is responding and kind of where you think this is all leading? Any thoughts you have on that, I'd love to hear. Well, first, I'm not involved in it. I don't know all the facts. Um, It's clear that um, the voice of what, you know, I said that I thought the USGA needed to be a guardian of the game. Right. And some people believe that live is not, is actually inconsistent with being a guardian of the game. That's a personal viewpoint. And I recognize that some people are going to be economically motivated and others are going to be, I'll call it philosophically motivated Yep. But I think that the the group that I would like to hear from that doesn't seem to be um, talked to is what happens to the local charities uh, yep. who get the benefit from the PGA Tour? What happens to the sponsors? What happens to the economic benefit in the cities where those tour events come and what happens to the general awareness of golf and what i see in the press is nearly a hundred percent focus on money yeah and i think that the broader focus needs to be put out there (coughs) excuse me and the other thing that i i don't know the answer to but uh this is almost certainly going to end up in court yeah and i don't know I'm not an antitrust lawyer. I don't know what the laws are, but I think that that whatever whatever court has jurisdiction over it is going to have a very large voice in what ultimately turns out. And I don't know who and where that is. Yeah. But that that's going to be much more important than what the average golfer on the street thinks. Yeah. Or what I or what I think. 
yeah, that those are all fair, and I, I do think it. it I, I agree with that, and and it's um, and I, I don't have enough, you know, knowledge of of that area of the law to know how that's going to turn out. But I agree that it'll end up in court, and and we'll have to um, we'll have to see how that goes. Um, before I let you go, I got to ask you one final thing. I, I reading about you, and and you're you're very modest. You talk about your playing, and I appreciate you know you may not have been able to. Uh, be the Alan Doyles of the world, but you, you know, you're a tremendous player. I saw, you know, uh, you had a scratch handicap, you know, for, for quite a while. I think I, I'm sure you've probably had your, 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 uh, your uh, successes at tournaments at Peachtree and otherwise route locally. How's your game these days? I tell people it's the twilight of a mediocre career. <laughs> um, but actually, That's- there, there is one thing about golf, though, that is yeah. that I'm a beneficiary of. Um, I, when I was 68 years old, I won the club championship at Peachtree. Wow. And, and I don't know of any other sport of any type where somebody that age can compete against other players of different ages yep. and still play the game well enough to do that. And I, it's unique to golf, and I. I commend the game for that reason, among others. Yeah. Wow. That's impressive. Um, and I, I totally agree. It's, it's a game for a lifetime and one of the many wonderful aspects of it. Um, Walt, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. This has been so interesting as I knew it would be um, and getting a chance to sort of hear about your life in golf and the USGA and, and other things in the game. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Well, golf's been a wonderful part of my life and anything I can do to promote it and help others enjoy it, I want to do. I appreciate it.